is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, my partner in crime, Patrick, is on the road out in California. We'll be hearing from him later. We're broadcasting today from the back of Roberta's Restaurant, as we do every single Sunday. Roberta's is located at 261 Moore Street in Brooklyn, New York. That's the uh, L train to Morgan Avenue. In case you're local, come on down for brunch. It's a great place. Um, Our show is produced and engineered today by Jack Inslee. Hi, Jack. And we're sponsored today by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. So, um, welcome to our guest. Uh, Fern Gale Estro. We have a great show lined up. So first, we'll, we'll start with Fern. Uh, then we'll go to a quick feed from Patrick, who's out in California. It's the Fancy Food Show in San Francisco right now. So I'm sure he's checked in on some of the suppliers there, some of the new products. Um, and then our last segment today will be with Susan Hunt-Stevens, who runs a blog called Practically Green, um, which is a source for tips and suggestions on how to um, make your home and living environment a little more more eco-friendly. So, um, Jack, let's take like a 30-second break, and then we'll come right back with Fern Gale Estro, director of FGE Food and Nutrition Team. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. In studio with me today is Fern Gale Estro. Fern is the um, the founder of uh, FGE um, Food and Nutri- uh, Food and Nutrition Team, right, Fern? Yes, and <laughs> and I'm just going to read a quick little bio on you, Fern, because you have a very impressive CV. I must say, um, Fern is a registered dietitian out of New York City who consults to organizations and government agencies around nutrition education. Food service, media literacy, hunger, environmental, uh, gov- environmental nutrition, building communities, partnerships, and public policy. She is the current chair-elect of the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group of the American Dietetic Association. Whoa! And the 2002 recipient of the Society for Nutrition Education's President's Award. As co-chair for the Society's 2001 annual conference, she was able to highlight her commitment to food systems through the conference theme, Full Circle Agriculture Nutrition. Nutrition and health. So you've been at this for quite a while, Fern. That's yeah. what I'm getting from this. Okay, <laughs> I can um, even add a little bit more. I'm yeah, <laughs> good, good, better, Since different. Then, right? Um, Fern works with the Community Food Security Public Policy Committee. She is cho- co-chair. Is this still ongoing? Am I reading an old bio here? It's I a little old, but yeah. that's okay. A lot of it. I mean, the nice part is I can build on top of it. Right. So um, now the way you came to me, and this is under the uh, Kids Can Make a Difference. You're on the advisory board for that organization, um, and that uh, that is another and I. 
I'm still with them. Yeah. And that's an organization that helps children uh, understand what gets our food from the right. farm to their tables, and which it, is uh, a great, a fantastic idea. I mean, we should have a whole program just about that. But um, let's let's we we decided that we wanted to talk about the farm bill because you and your colleague Ed Yowell from Slow Food had uh, have are actually in the ongoing process of creating kind of a primer for people on what the farm bill is, what it stands for, what it means uh, for consumers and for um, for farmers, and how that those choices that they make in those farm bills, which last for about five years, right? That's right. They generally run about every five years. Yeah. So the 2012 farm bill is is kind of under negotiation, and what do you think? we can expect uh in terms of of new initiatives or is it just going to be more of the same old same old i think we're going to be looking at sadly a situation because of the economy where the existing initiatives we're going to have to choose from uh-huh. it's really going to be somewhere um where we worked very hard in the last farm bill um and many of us felt we achieved some really positive steps forward um, uh, perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about the commodities issues a little bit later. We do want but, to talk about commodities. But uh, the reality of it is that we were able to get funding into some uh, areas that we had not in the past. We were able to address some of the issues around our uh, farm labor. And uh, it, it was an opportunity to bring together a lot of groups that had not worked closely together in the past. One of the things, I happen to be a registered dietitian, um, who I'm happy to say works in the intersection of agriculture and public health uh, and hunger. And the reality of it is that we have, we are talking more as a unit. We're working closer together. And that's really, really important. The money Right now, um, the key conversation I have with people is we really need to figure out as a group what our priorities are, because what recently happened in child nutrition reauthorization, which is a similar bill, not nearly as complicated, was there was a, a process by which they wanted to fund one program using funds from another. Uh-huh. And boy, that's the fastest way to split up a group. Yeah, I would imagine. And that's what's going likely to happen. The way... In the last farm bill, Wrangell was able to identify funds to fill the gap by um, finding monies through tax base. This time round, that will not be allowed. New rules have been introduced to the House, and that is closed to us. If we, It's not what has been come to be known as PAYGO. It's a little different. Any funding has to come from an existing program. Uh-huh. And not necessarily from a tax base. So when we talk about the existing programs, we're talking about the titles that are that come under the farm bill uh, sort of as a whole. These right. are individual small programs that include things like um, food stamps. Yes. Um, Which uh, we now call SNAP. Right. And commodity uh, price supports, right? Which Com- is something that you and I, I really want to talk that issue out. In and I want people to understand way. the commodity price supports are somewhat different than the commodities that we talk about in the school lunch program. It's a little they they related. What are those differences? Well, well, the, the fact of the matter is, commodities in the school lunch program are is a purchasing process by which we, uh, the nation's uh, school system and some of our uh, government-funded food programs do purchase food that is produced by farmers in the commodity area, but the funding is for the schools to make those purchases or those institutions like WIC and not doing directly necessarily to the farmers per se. Uh Um, It's it's 
it's a method of moving money from one place to another, but it's part of child nutrition. And people get those confused, whereas the commodities price supports are not only food-based, um, cotton, for example. That's right. Although cotton seed oil does it good. But there you know, are other... They call it upland cotton, cotton. I was reading. <laughs> I read up on this last night because I was reading the farm bill myself so that I could really But there are understand. real, you know, there are... There are textile components to it, uh-huh. and certainly now we're talking fuel as a factor in this conversation. Right. Well, one thing I noticed actually in uh, the sort of in the very interesting Farm Bill 1.01, uh, which is up on a number of different sites actually, but um, do you want to direct people to the best Food place? Sy- yeah, we actually wrote it as part. Uh, Ed and I are both very engaged in a group called the Food Systems Network NYC. Uh, we're both co-founders amongst a number of other people, and I wouldn't say co-founders, we're, we're some of the founders. I am a past chair. I was chair for five years, and Ed is current chair, co-chair with another colleague of ours, Stacey Flanagan. And we do a newsletter monthly, and uh-huh. we also have a, a monthly meeting um, every Tuesday of the month. It varies, so check out the website where it will be. And that's farmsystemsnyc.org, right? You got it. Yeah, cool. Jack, you got that? Good boy. <laughs> um, but to go back for just a second to what we were talking about, um, which is some of the titles in the Farm Bill, um, one thing I was noticing was that, um, well, there were a number of things that really surprised me in this, I must say. Um, but uh, uh, the commodity price supports uh, include wheat, corn, barley, grain, sorghum, oats, upland cop- cotton, rice, soybeans, and other oil seeds and peanuts. And that's $41.6 billion. And then the other thing, the nutrition... Wait, no, sorry. I should have had this no- noted here. But stuff like rural development and supporting rural development through loan and grant programs was only $2.2 billion. Right. Yeah. So, I guess my question uh, to that is, if if we were to go from supporting commodities to, if we were to remove some of the supports, which would happen against, over the dead bodies, I suspect, many large companies, <laughs> if we were to do that and put more money into rural development, that would have to come, it would have to come from within the program, in other words. It wouldn't be something that, say, a state could start raising taxes to no, develop. That's correct. Okay. Now, and the thing is, I do want to qualify a little bit. The issue around price supports and commodities, well, truly, there is a huge relationship with the large companies and the, you know, the key ones that are out there that um, many of us are familiar with. Small farmers do benefit from them. And if you were to talk with small farm communities and like National Family Farm Coalition, we're not opposed to commodity supports at, you know, every level. Right. Some people are. But those many of us who are actually working with the farming community recognize that there, you know, there are some benefits to this process, it can be problematic the way it's evolved. Well, the thing that I think that what most people think of when they think of commodity price supports, uh, you know, supporting uh, corn being Correct. the most obvious one, and that being sort of leading into the whole biofuels program and the ethanol. So corn and soybeans, which seem to be the two primary right. crops that are uh, developed for biofuel. And um, those people think of that as those are the bad guys. Kind of, and and I think that it's important to make the distinction between who is that there is no bad guy here, and that the point that you're making that small farms also benefit from from some of these programs. I'd like to draw you out a little bit more about you know in 
in the sense that these huge subsidies are going towards people who produce those crops, which tend to be larger farms, where is it built in that the smaller and, and medium-sized farms are benefiting from these programs if they're not growing those crops? Well, there are several aspects to this. First of all, let's just talk about corn for a minute. Corn is divided into sweet corn mm-hmm. and feed corn. But right. We have also, of course, corn dealing with our, our fuel supply. Most corn that's grown in this country is not used to be consumed directly by humans. Right. It is either being used to feed animals mm-hmm. or being used to, and uh, now more in the fuel arena. The, the small farmer, um, it, there are two sections to this piece. Many farmers had to join out of economic survival into larger cooperatives, not necessarily cooperative, may not be the best term, groups to survive. They, big companies came in and and provided them with certain things and controlled the market. That would be uh, seed. Yes. Fertilizer. (laughs) Kind of like what people saw in Food Inc. with Monsanto. A very good example. And... Um, as a matter of fact, the opening scene in Food Inc., of course, is with the egg farmer, I mean, the chicken farmer. Yes. And what? And that's a really classic example mm-hmm. of what this is all about. You know, here you have a person who's a woman who is extremely committed to what she was doing and ethically could no, not survive doing what was happening. Whereas another farmer said, you know, this is this is my bread and butter. This is my family. This is my money. And I, I they're taking care of me. It's the big company taking care of me. So. There's somewhere in the middle that has to be worked out. Yes. And um, you can't totally destroy the system as it is without finding something to renew it. And my gut says it's going to be transitional. Um, I know that there were amendments in the last farm bill where there were the hopes on part of some legislators to really just cut it all out. Right. That's anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said it so succinctly. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, And people who know me know that I'm very much uh, in support of developing our smaller connections, developing our local economies, um, and maintaining uh, supply chains that encourage economic development at a more local level. Uh, But the reality is that that's going to take us time, and there's going to have, on my mind, there'd be some coexistence for a while, if not forever. Forever. Yeah. I mean, I don't really see I don't really see how uh monocultural farming whether it's livestock or or um or you know a, a grain or a, or a grass like corn is ever going to be replaced because we just don't have enough land to sustain the amount of food we need to grow for not only this country's needs, but to support our economic base because we export so much agricultural product out of this country. And it supports so many people. Our agricultural programs support thousands and thousands of families. It's jobs. And, and it's an interesting issue because what one of the things people often talk about is, well, we don't have enough food to feed the world. To be honest with you, that's not um, something I would support. Uh, based on infrastructure issues. Yeah, we have enough food to feed the world. Does the world need to eat as much as we do eat, number one, and number two? Well, do they need to eat what we've been telling them to eat? Right. And the, um, <laughs> That's the real issue. There's another piece of infrastructure in terms of um, what is the, the literal uh, capacity of a, 
a country, not necessarily the United States, of a nation in terms of their built infrastructure to transport food from one place to another, which in some instances in terms of world hunger is a real issue. But when you talk about the economy of the United States, a lot of jobs are related to the food world and to the growing of the crops and the processing of the crops. And, you know, we talk about it locally, added value. Right. Know, many of us are familiar with the com- organization Slow Food and, you know, helping farmers um, recognize that if you take your berries that you're growing and you turn them into jam, which is an added value product, you can get more money for that. That's right. And people and you love can sell jam. it throughout the season. And you can sell it right. And so you're, you're not, not dead in the water in the winter. Exactly. And it's, you know, as a nutritionist, I really encourage people to, you know, eat fresh when it's available and in season. I also happen to like frozen products and I use them and I encourage them. I'm not as great a supporter of a lot of the canned products, but yeah, I love pickling myself. And, you know, as a sure. condiment, adding flavor to something, it's a really vital part of the conversation. And do canning, and I make jam, and having jam on toast is not a bad thing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's how we do it, how much we do it. Um, you know, having jam on toast made with high fructose corn syrup, that I have a problem with. Right. And I think that's where, you know, should we be growing corn? Should we be growing sugar cane? Um, how, who should be owning the seed? I mean, these are all really critical conversations. And another part of the complication in the farm bill and and in the commodities section, also in the trade section, is that the conversations around biotechnology are very, um, they're glossed over. Right. Um, uh, There are other, they're inferred by modern technologies, but they don't, the terms are not that readily Stated Right. Let's take a quick break there, and we'll come right back with Fern and talk a little bit about um, biotech and also about um, how price supports affect consumer prices and so forth. Five lonely days when I rode into town Down from the mine to lay some money down This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and in the studio with me today is Fern Gale Estro, uh, who is a um, has wears many hats, but uh, <laughs> is here today to talk with us about the Farm Bill. And um, Fern, we were just talking about biotech, and I wanted to just come back to that and then move on to um, how these price structures affect the consumer and what would happen if they went away. <laughs> So let's let's talk a little bit about biotech because I think that um, you know people uh, rail against sort of the Monsanto uh, model and and the idea that of genetically modified crops and all of that all of that part and parcel of biotech, um, which people have very strong feelings about, some of them pro and some of them con, obviously, um, and the very real uh, ways in which they have changed um, how how we farm in the United States and around the world, um, and also the the impact that they've had uh, in terms of lowering prices because you can raise more grain per square foot 
now than ever before. And some people say that that is because of these seeds. And some people say, well, no, it's because it's better farming techniques or it's something, you know, or you can do it without that. I don't know the answers to those questions. So how, how do you come down on that? Or what do you think is the research shows? There are several ways of approaching this. Um, as far as it producing more food, the research is split. Okay. Um, and that's, of course, the problem. And some people would not say this is not a new technology. Those of some of us feel it is a relatively new technology. Um, it's gone under a variety of names, um, genetically modified organisms versus biotechnology. What is the difference? And I'm not going to go into that specifically right now. That's fine. But what I would say is that what we're talking about at another level is who owns the seed. And that is a really critical part of that conversation. Is it safe? My point, I want to have a right to choose the product that I consume. Uh-huh. Is it different? Um, I think there are components of it that are in question. And I think personally, are we only talking plants or are we also talking fish? And how far out are we talking about genetic Sure, livestock. Product? I mean, the hybridization of, of uh, cattle pig and chicken breeds exactly. has had very serious uh, effects on yeah. their on their health and well-being that's, and that's, the, a, that's a fact the cultural pieces of you know what it mean if I take a gene from one thing and put it in another from a religious perspective um, I the drift is an issue and Monsanto has gone out there and sued farmers over this and it's had a horrific effect both in Canada and some states here Missouri uh-huh. Um, and the cases are frightening. And basically, you cannot control for the wind. So right. they have not been able to confine this, the seed. And as far as I'm concerned, I want the right to have to grow my plants and know that they will not necessarily be cross-contaminated. People often ask me, what is an heirloom? There's a little bit of a misunderstanding around that. Um, heirlooms grow true. They breed true. That's all it means. Uh I can grow an heirloom tomato conventionally. It doesn't mean it's organic. It simply means it breeds true. A genetically modified seed will not breed true. What do you mean by that? It will not. you, You need to plant it each time. You need to buy it from the seed source each time. You need to use certain products. In other words, when you take seed, or say you plant a field of corn and you use a genetically modified seed, the next time you, you couldn't retain a couple of ears of that corn and plant those kernels and have the, the, grass, the corn come up the same as it did the year before. It'll come up. It may not come up the exact same. Uh-huh. And you will still need to do all those, potentially those inputs, but you're going to start getting variations. And actually, we do that with most of our crops today and most of our seed, because most of our seed is hybrid. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to keep crossbreeding or you lose what they call hybrid vigor. So there's a fine line there, and and I think it's worth teasing that out for a second, because, for instance, in um, livestock breeding, I know that um, they crossbreed different varieties of pigs in order Mm -hmm. to get a specific set of characteristics that are desirable. Now, in the commodity pig market, they breed for big litters, good mommies, 
and lean meat. Okay, those are the probably the three top characteristics that they breed for in in commodity hog farming. Whereas in specialty hog farming, like if you're looking for you know a Duroc or a Ber- or a Berkshire or something like that, mm-hmm. you might breed in maybe one of those like the Duroc, for instance, is mean. It's a mean breed. I think that's the one that's mean. Anyway, there's some of them that are just right. have an evil temperament. You're going to breed in a gene that's going to temper that, but so that it's to- easier for the farmer to manage them. But the way you're going to do that is by two piggies getting together that have these different genes and working to make it happen. Right. And, we, and it's, science has value, but when we do it and we then put a price tag on it and control it, it's another conversation. Yeah. You know, this is not the farmer who is owns these two breeds doing this. Right. This Who's is being done and making a his own herd the way he wants it to be. Right. right. Also, when you do this level of breeding... Uh, again, going back to food egg, which I think is a really good example, and if you haven't seen it, I really recommend you do. And it, it's not all that perfect. I mean, there are pieces in there. I had I lots not, of problems with that yeah, film. Okay, <laughs> and I'm, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm saying that up front and not going to the specifics, but I think there's some good points to it for sure. Absolutely. And the you know, if you take a look at a chicken of what is bred today versus what we used yeah. to breed, um, I, I don't necessarily particularly feel that breeding animals to the point where they can't stand is appropriate. Exactly right. You know, and um, that's, um, you know, there. It's, it's an ethical conversation, but it's also a human health conversation. And here we'll come into my registered dietitian point. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because, you know, what we're talking about when we do this kind of breeding, and this is not crop breeding necessarily, but it does have a relationship to it. Um, when we talk about animal breeding like this, it's uh, we use a lot of antibiotics, for example, and the antibiotics uh, cause something called antibiotic resistance. Sure. Now, it's not the antibiotic that's being consumed by the humans that's a problem because there's very little of the antibiotic there. But right. by using these antibiotics to breed these animals, to keep them healthy, to make them produce and grow faster, what we're doing is actually wasting the antibiotic because we get resistant strains to it. Of disease. Correct. So when you and I need that antibiotic to treat something that makes us that sick. That bug has morphed into something that stronger will not be affected by and the And that's the danger. Yeah, of course. And so, um, you know, these are the un- ex- unaccounted for consequences. Right. And so, likewise with the plant world, and if we go back into the corn, we have lost tremendous varieties that we have had that we used to be able to know what we would grow on this hill. Wine, we do it with. Why can we do it with wine and not corn? I right. mean, we value wine that's been grown with an appellation in Europe, you know, in France, that has a designate. And the reason it grows well on that particular hill, on that particular side, is it's because it's a particular seed. Sure. And there's an art and a science in that. Sure. There's no reason to lose it. And... Um, biotechnology has had positive impacts in terms of medicine, in terms of insulin. You know, people that don't really necessarily understand that. But when it comes to our food supply, you know, that stuff's happening in a vat when I'm dealing with insulin. And I don't want it to be in a plant that's grown in a crop that can crossbreed with something else that I have. And I want there to be more control of it. Yeah, and well, that seems legitimate. I mean, I think that there's an argument to be made that uh, hybridizing crops to the point where they produce well with minimum inputs or something like that, and that's the kind of hybridization you're looking for as a big seed company. There's some value to that. There Although is, monocropping is very dangerous. Well, yeah, absolutely. 
And that's the piece. I mean, we figure like people, where, what happened well, to Well, you the don't want the potato famine to happen Potato again. famine, yeah. right. Look what happened to our tomato situation. Potato pay. Right, two years ago when exactly. we had the tomato blight, yeah. Although that was potato blight. It was potato blight that affected tomatoes. Yeah. It was both. And, you know, it, it affected certain varieties in certain situations. And, you know, these we, people, a lot of, we did a lot of different building. The tomatoes that we did end up having, yeah, the people had to treat their tomatoes a certain way and pulled a lot of people out of the organic conversation. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was horrible. Farmers were being forced into situations of making choices of surviving or not. Right. Separate from the fact whether I wanted a tomato in my, my food supply or not. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, it is a complicated piece. Um, I am not a, a, a big supporter of GMOs at all. Um, I really feel that we're losing a lot of the knowledge base that's critical to survival. I would agree with you there. And we are centralizing a lot of power in a very small area, and I don't agree with that either. Um, I think it's important that we have that diversity for strength in the food supply. The Dust Bowl, what happened was we ran into trouble because we were growing prominently a set of crops in one area and when we had a drought we were trouble yeah and it's always it's going to be the same with anything well i think that's true and i think also especially as as we move forward uh into the into this new century and uh water becomes more of an issue absolutely um as a commodity itself global warming continues to heat up the planet and droughts become more prevalent and not just in the sub-saharan areas but also in in the corn belt of our own country water is already a commodity in parts of this country i mean you know like colorado absolutely and, um, you know, in California, which has an incredible, you know, resource for all kinds of cropping, you know, water, a lot of that area would have a really hard time if water was all of a sudden, quote, the commodity. Yeah. The Northeast is really in an interesting position. Um, what we have here is uh, a diversity that we really want to maintain. Um, you know, we do not have the same level of... Um, monoculture that goes on around the rest of the country. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, it's because we don't have uh, terrain that is acres and acres of flat right. cornfield or whatever rice or whatever it is that you know your commodity is. But uh, we don't have the opportunity because the soil here is rocky. It's uneven. It's and we want it's not suited cyclically seasonally to well and some of those. You crops. know, we're doing some. You know, what we call hoop. You know, built structures now and built extending the growing season by. By building structures that you can grow, ex- you know, you can start term. your season earlier, yes, yeah. extend it later. But the soil, or the health of the soil, is critical. And um, I recently had a conversation with some of the people up at Glenwood, and they're doing some work up there. And you know, the soil you can't keep growing the same products over and over. Right. You have to rotate your crops. You need to rotate. You need to be able to put it back in. Yeah, you know, these are really important pieces, and. Um, you can't necessarily add minerals to soil to make it rich. It's got to be the minerals and the, the food things that people can absorb, the plant can absorb, just like humans. Yeah. You know, we don't absorb every form of vitamin E. Right. <laughs> I don't want to get too nutrient-based, but the bottom line is these are the complications. And so when we're looking at a farm bill, we need to look at it from the pace of public health. We need to look at it from a farmer's perspective. We need to look at it as an economic. We need to look at it from the perspective of hunger. And all together, they're not silos. Right. They really, you know, and the economy of all is interdependent on the other. Uh, I don't like to separate the rural-urban conversation too much, to be honest with you. Uh, it's been a tendency to talk about urban agriculture lately, and 
I think it's more community agriculture um, because the issues, while there may be some specifics, agriculture has needs that are pretty much the same across the board when, you pr- when you're practicing it in a way that's healthy. Right. You know, and I'm all for our community gardens and our CSAs and our farms in urban environments, but, and the transportation and pieces factor in, but we need to work together. And, and this farm bill, I think, is going to be an opportunity for us to show Congress and the rest of the world how we are we're going to work together and we're not going to be split and we're not going to be, you know, we will come together, we will identify what we feel is important and work together to make it happen. We recognize there's an economic reality here that we have to deal with. I mean, today they were talking on the news, $16 trillion in debt. You know, I mean... Yeah, said. I mean, it, 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 we're not going to find new money here. And, no, and definitely so not. My recommendation is for all of us to start taking a look at our areas of interest and really narrowing it down, and trying to f- and find where we have common ground and work together. Right. Well, um, to speak for a second about community uh, agriculture and sort of that whole locavore thing, which is so um, so uh, trendy right now. I mean, you know, it's. I shop for my farmer's market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's a great thing. Um, but one of the things I noticed in the farm bill here is uh, Title IX, livestock, supporting livestock and poultry marketing and competition. And I know one of the things that most people feel strongest about is animal welfare and where their animals are coming from. And so I noticed here that this is only a million, a million dollars out of this, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar project or uh, bill, only a million dollars is being devoted to, um, I guess, supporting people who want to grow livestock in a slightly less uh, factory sort of way. And I'm wondering how realistic it is to think that anything in the, you know, meat category, in the protein category, as they like to say, is going to... (laughs) I actually, yeah, I had read that this was a term that you like to associate with yourself, which I think is very interesting. (laughs) Um, beans do fall into the protein category, but yes, I do get your point. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that we're also looking at some new legislation that just came through, and um, it'll be interesting. You mean to in terms of the Food Safety Act? Boy, you're really on top of it. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. And there are positives try. and negatives about that one as well. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, we, we got an amendment in there that we hope will help work things through with our smaller smaller producers yeah right because that's been a big issue for them tremendous and but it was also many of us feel needed legislation for the very reasons we're speaking to when you're dealing with factory farming and CAFOs and huge butcher by the way uh, large meat packers do not refer to them as CAFOs I know they're feedlots feedlots okay well and we call confined contained feeding animal operations Um, but yes the point being that you know it's they're are problems inherent in uh, the way food is produced that it makes it unhealthy? There are, but at the same time, those big companies, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate, but I also just came uh, from inspecting, or not inspecting, but touring a major uh, Cargill plant in mm-hmm. Colorado with Temple Grandin, and 
Um, the thing that impressed me very much was their food safety practices, which were extraordinary. Um, and also the conversation that I had with the plant manager, who, of course, being the plant manager for a Cargill plant, a huge one that processes 4,500 head of cattle a day, mm. um, she said, well, the thing that scares me about the smaller producers is that they cannot afford to put in the interventions that we as a giant corporation like Cargill can afford to do. And I think that that's a very real concern. And I think that um, that it was, you know, it was a point that I haven't really thought about that much. But I think it is hard for smaller producers or smaller packers. And I think a lot of the most egregious problems that people have seen over the last 20 years with um, the meatpacking industry have come quite often at the hands of, of smaller packers who just don't have. Smaller is a relative term. Yeah. Okay, I'm not so talking I, about somebody who processes 100 head a day. I'm well, and that's, you know, our small farmers are not the packers you're referring to. Um, and this is a conversation, probably we could have a few of these. Yeah, um, we're going to take a break in a minute, but yeah, <laughs> but let's let's stay with this for just a second more. My, basically, the problem we have is when a Cargill has a mistake, Yeah, it's massive. That's right. And it affects, affects millions. I mean, literally a hamburger per person took place on the last one of those recalls when they had to pull back. A recall. I'm not saying it was Cargill's, but that's that level. You mean the Westlake Hallmark? Yeah. yeah. It's so it, the thing is that people need to understand there are both sides to this conversation. Yes, they have fantastic HACCP, what we call ways of protecting the consumer. Yeah. When it fails, it is, it is huge. It's huge. Absolutely. So that. That's one of the reasons we need to have some balance around. Well, one of the things that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no way to really control for that, except that they, this particular plant is very careful about where it gets its ground from, you know, the trim that it's going to use. And that's a whole different conversation. But yeah. let's take one minute break, Jack. And then I want to come back and just talk for a second more. I know I'm, I'm sort of a broken record here, but the, but the farm supports and how that affects the community, how it affects right. the consumer and, um, and food prices. Welcome back to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie Kiefer speaking. My partner in crime, Patrick Martins, is going to join us in a few minutes from uh, California, where he's uh, taking care of business out there and checking out the Fancy Food Show, I think. <laughs> um, but meanwhile, here in the studio, we have uh, Ferngale Estro, who is uh, joining us from FGE Food and Nutrition Team. Now you understand why um, the food and nutrition are together, I right? I totally get it. I know. You've been a fantastic guest, um, Fern. So we unfortunately only have 10 more minutes, but I do hope you'll come back another time um, so we can like dis- dissect one of the next uh, installments <laughs> of the of, of Farm 1.02, etc. So, um, But one of the things I really wanted to drill down on with you was um, when and if we ever transition away from subsidizing these monoculture crops like corn or soybeans or whatever, um, how are those how are those changes in price supports going to affect the consumer in terms of food prices um, and also in terms of what gets grown? I guess now I've made this into a much bigger 
question. So let's, let's start with the first the prices. Let's start with okay. food prices because everybody's concerned about that. And, and it's real. And we have to remember that a good part, the majority of the money that goes into the farm bill is for uh, what we call the SNAP program, formerly called the food stamp program. Right. And it's a really important part of and what goes on. And I can actually on. give the amount of how much that's worth because it's, it's very impressive. Uh, that was like $189 billion, I mm-hmm. think, for that. Um, yeah, $188.9 billion. Dollars. And the reality of it is that in a time right we are now, that's an even more important component. Um, we are really looking at people. I work a lot with the Head Start low-income communities. And uh, hunger, I am seeing poverty at its highest experiencing it. I not, the numbers are proving it out, actually, for New York City, but I'm experiencing it with my families at the highest rate I've ever seen. Right. And I've been in the profession. It's just, I'm a career changer, but I've been in the profession for over 15 years, um, working specifically since 1995 in low-income communities. Um, what I would say is we, it's a poverty conversation and a living wage po- conversation. Um, and we need to pay our farmers what they're entitled to and we need to provide our community with the funds needed to purchase the food at a price that is reasonable. Food in this country is cheap. It's cheaper than anywhere in the world. Well, we spend 4 to 6% of our annual budget on food, and around the world it's more like 25 Exactly. And, you know, that's something we have to come to grips with. Yeah. Um, and what does it mean, and what does the waste mean? Um, what are we choosing to consume? Um and, you know, the supports, I do eat meat, as it happens, um, although one of my favorite books and favorite people um, are uh, Diet for a Small Planet, and uh, Frankie, uh, Francis Moore LePay, you know, did a great deal for us in many ways, and I, I support her work tremendously. Um, I'm also, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, we were having our, I like my beef, and I like my meat and lamb, and I'm glad Glenwood is growing um you know, herds. So well, we're glad Heritage Foods USA exists. Exactly. To you know, small family family farms. farms. <laughs> exactly. So I think that what we're really dealing with here is a, a transition in thinking for our society of how much we pay for food and how much we pay people to work. And that's where you get into the poverty conversation and minimum wage and all that. It's, it's complicated. It, our farm workers are really a perfect example. In New York State, we had a situation where, you know, how much do we pay the farmer, you know, the, 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 are the people picking the crops? Which, well, I which is usually a migrational force. Absolutely. We, migrational. But it is, well, what people don't realize is these people are skilled. This is not an unskilled trade. Right. These are skilled people. There is a way to pick. So if I'm going to pay those people more, I have to charge the consumer more. Right. So to, in order to be ethical in this conversation, we really have to really look at the whole system and say, how are we going to address feeding people at a, in a way that supports an economy that's ethical? And that's the Farm Bill Plus. You know, it, it's really looking at the how we as a society are prepared to work together. Um, there's going to be a lot of conversation in this farm bill around food stamps, I suspect, and what food stamps buys. Um, you know, we already have had some of that conversation in, in New York City in terms of um, the soft drink conversation. Right. And it's complicated. 
Uh, again, I'm not going to go into it here now, but I think it probably be a bit of interest and has value to this conversation. Um, you know, should healthy foods, what is a healthy food, choice, you know. And so people, the economics of the commodity structure um, has, it, we, we can't function on cheap food. And yet we do need to have food available for those who do not have access to the economic opportunities, particularly in a situation as we do now, where the poor are getting poorer and they are suffering more and more. Right. It really, it were, it's really growing much more into a lower and a, a, a richer and a poorer class. The middle class is separating apart. And, um, mm-hmm. and food stamps, or SNAP as we call it now, are, is a really important support system. It is mandated, unlike WIC, which is part of Child Nutrition Reauthorization, which is not mandated. WIC is Women in, with Infants, infants and, and Children. children. It's, a, as a matter of fact, a huge part of what supports a lot of our children in this country, and it's brain development. Yeah. You deprive people of food at an early Basic stage of life, yeah. healthy nutrients, and that's where school food comes in. And, you know, so it's, it, they're, they're tied in together. And there's a, yes, the farm bill initially was about supporting our farmers. We are in another time. It is another era. What we eat, the health of the soil, is the health of our society. That is public health. They right. are intertwined, and we need to keep that in mind and work together. And it is economic. But people, when people are hungry, their brain development is not good. And that results in a society that is destined to fall apart. Ooh. <laughs> I mean it quite sincerely. I, I really Take firmly, that. <laughs> I this is what I believe. We're talking. No, I, I'm absolutely in agreement with you. I mean, no people. I, I say it with conviction. Some people say I'm passion. It's the reason that I work in the area I do and have for many years. I'm, and you know, this I'm trying to remember. Is this my third or fourth farm bill? I kind of was involved in it before I was a student because I was a restaurateur at one time as well. Uh-huh. And so I, I have that understanding of it at many levels. Right. And, yeah, clearly. Um, you know, I, I've been engaged with producers. Uh, one time I worked with an organization called, a company called Flying Foods, importing food oh, from I all over the that. world. <laughs> I remember that I very well. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. But, you know, I still appreciate, you know, food from other country, but I'm very, I do it consciously when I'm buying food from long distances and things like that. And I think that is the other part of the conversation, affording our community um, to be conscious consumers. And I do think that's a responsibility of the Farm Bill. Um, labeling, cool, which is the, um, you know, where is our f- country of origin? They allocated almost no money to those, and those aspects of, of the food. Uh, that is correct. Of the Farm Bill. And I mean, they uh, gave us some. We got, we made a little bit of headway. We made, well, finally, cool was implemented. I think it was in January of last year. It's been hanging right. around for two and or And it's three expanding years actually that. into some other areas. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, the, and now we're going to start to see a little bit more about our ingredients on some of our meats and what's going on with food labeling there. Food labeling is yet another conversation. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the reality of um, knowing, being an informed consumer, you know, there's some suggestion that the menu labeling we have in New York City has not, or around the country, people are questioning whether it's been effective. Oh, well, it's been effective by my choices. I think it's definitely been effective. You know, I see vendors now creating portions that are more reasonable, and I work with families. I mean, I had a child who was not even five years old who was 119 pounds. Now, that's an extreme. Yeah. But I do have children in their eight who are in the eight, less than five years old 
in the pounds of 80s and 90s. I didn't weigh 80 until I was 13. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm well over where I was when I was in the college. When I was in college, I just weighed around 100 pounds. Yeah. Um, I weigh substantially more now, but, and I'm happy about it. But um, the reality of it is this is not healthy. Right. We have children who are sick. They no longer we do we call it, uh, you know, it's not childhood diabetes and adult onset. It's one and two because the children are right. getting it younger. We have and we have communities we can look at like the Pima, where we have seen changes in their food supply have tremendous impacts so that their obesity rate and the diabetes rate is 90 percent of their population. Um, and this is a tribe. Um, in part of the United States, and people can look into it. Although there's data, is hard to find now because they've removed a lot of it from the internet because they're trying to really get a handle on it amongst their own peoples. It's an uh-huh. indigenous community. So all of this said, I really do sincerely think that our society as a whole really is um, this is critical for our survival. Well, I think um, we're going to have to wrap it up here, Fern, and I, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the show today and trekking out here to Brooklyn, but uh, there is so there are so many loose ends here um, that we could pick up again, and, and I'd like to talk more about this issue of how we transition, uh, you know, the average consumer into being willing to recognize that farms need a certain amount of money to make them work, and that supporting, artificially supporting certain prices is not in the best interests of everybody, um, just the interests of a few. Um, but uh, Fern, uh, please do come back, and I thank you so to. much for joining us. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Patrick Martins coming in from San Francisco. And then after that, we'll have uh, Susan Hunt-Stevens from Practically Green. Thanks so much. What's up with the Irish jig here? <laughs> Changing it up from our usual Cherry Holmes, huh? Okay, this is the main course uh, on Heritage Radio Network, and I am Katie Kiefer, your host, with my co-host and partner in crime and much-missed friend, uh, Patrick Martins, at the other end of the phone line. Right, Patrick? Hello? Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you? I am in Jack London Square, which is very appropriate considering Jack is our executive producer. That's right. And, you know, the call of the wild rings true for all of us here at Heritage Radio Network, doesn't it? Jack, does Jack own a dog named Fang? (laughs) 
<laughs> so what are you doing out there in San Francisco, Patrick? Have you been to the Fancy Food Show? Well, I am being inspired. Really? So, therefore, by definition, not going to the Fancy Food Show. I have been, like, amazed at the culture and energy here. I mean, I'm, I'm visiting basically the reason I came to the West Coast was to visit the accounts that buy from Heritage. Not really opening new accounts, just visiting the base. Uh-huh. Solidifying the base. That's right. So uh, I have just had a, an unbelievable time. Um, I'll just give you a quick whirlwind tour. We arrived, uh, first of all, because of the storm. I had to drive all the way to D.C. through the blizzard. I know. This I... is the nearest airport. I, it took like eight hours. Oh, my God. So uh, I made it. Uh, we drove straight up to Napa to see Celadon, uh, which is a restaurant that buys from us. And I hung out with Chris Carpenter and his family. He's the chairman of the board of Slow Food USA. So that was super interesting. Very. Then uh, the next day I visited really one of the best wineries in the country, and he's also a sponsor of the network. But Oh, I the King Five. Yeah, what a lovely place. It's really off the beaten path. You know, it's not along 29 of the Silverado Trail. It's up in the mountains. But what an intense... Um, what an intense man uh, Christopher Howell is, and really I think should be a subject of not just our show, but many shows, is the art of pruning vines and the art of, of, of looking 50 years down the line with what you're that doing That is today. an art form. <laughs> oh, very, very interesting. Yeah. So uh, then from Kane, we visited uh, a guy named Abe Schoner, who is part of the Scolium Project which he works with Christopher Nicholson, the salmon guy. Yeah, I don't know what Scolium uh, Project is. Why don't you say what that is? It's a very interesting project where they don't own a winery. They just buy grapes, and they do funky things to it. They kind of push the envelope of what wine is. So very high-alcohol wines and very low-alcohol wines and very strong reds. But, you know, they really play around with things. Huh. And uh, they do it in a little garage in Fairfield. Cool. So, you know, that was super interesting. Also in uh, St. Helena, we ate at a great restaurant called Farmstead, which has that, like, expansive inside, and they buy all sustainable foods, and it's right. And St. Helena is so beautiful. And then, uh, you know, back to San Fran, and uh, we visit Kakari, which is a restaurant on Jackson Jackson Street right next to the Ferry Plaza, and, and the Greek food is just so amazing there, and it's full, and it's loud, and it's fun. Um, that was Kakari. Last night, we went to Chez Panisse and had the loveliest dinner. Oh, this um, is sounding so yeah. painful. Yeah, it was. Actually, I, have <laughs> I don't like know how you stand these reflex. trips, Patrick. <laughs> I have acid reflux now, like every time I breathe, like some... <laughs> Some acid, acid like burns my esophagus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, I would have um, been crying. Yesterday, we visited some great accounts. We had well, first of all, the Ferry Plaza is an unbelievable, you know, resource. The big farmers market the there. You mean? Yeah, and in addition to the regular farmers, uh, the night before there were the Good Food Awards that Sarah Weiner and Alice Water organized, where they awarded the best you know, of their kind in the various states. So, you know, the best chutneys around America, the best jams, the best charcuterie. And I was really proud that our 
Sam Edwards won for the No East kidding. Summer. Yay. Congratulations to it. Sam. Yes, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, yesterday um, we basically we stayed at the Hotel Vitali and ate at the Americana Hotel, which is great. And then yesterday we just did a tour of our accounts. So we did Cafe Rouge in Berkeley, Zoot in Berkeley. Um, Denny Abrams, a friend of mine, gave me a tour of the Brooklyn Bowl, which uh-huh. is literally the nicest restaurant. I mean, a supermarket I've ever seen. Better it than Buy Right? Oh, we visited, we spent the day with Sam at Byright. Oh, right. my God. Sam, the best thing I can say about Byright is that it is like he has created, and he owns it, he founded it himself. It is like Sesame Street. <laughs> everybody knows everybody, and Aww. Sam, hello, how are you? And he's opened an ice cream shop across the street. He has a restaurant called 18 Reasons that does special events for the community there. And it's in a really, really cool neighborhood that no one believed in when he opened it, uh-huh. uh, you know, or bought it 15 years ago. And now it's a lovely park. It's almost like the Thompson Square uh-huh. neighborhood right. in New York. So that was unbelievable. So yesterday we visited Marsha McBride at Cafe Rouge. Oh, yeah, I love her. Oliveto She's been a guest on our show. New, she has. Oliveto has a new chef now named Jonah. And he is very talented. Um, and then we visit a fascinating restaurant, which used to be a vegetarian restaurant, which makes it all the more impressive that they buy from us. But it's called Gather, and it's in Berkeley, and it is huge and packed and great energy there and a very, very unusual restaurant. And they, it, it, it exists in a massive building dedicated to nonprofits. Wow. So anyway, it's just fascinating, and there's something about San Francisco that's, like, different, really, than any other part of the country. I mean, A, they have arguably the best terroir in the world. You know, uh, it would be hard to think of of an area that produces more diverse array of foods. And and the people, and I guess that terroir unites and elevates the people, because they're all kind of united in sustainability. No so what you'd say that was it, did you see a big difference between the you know the sort of community here that's involved in that and the and San Francisco you think it's a bigger movement out there and more is going on or it's is it comparable to the to the what's happening in Brooklyn and New York and the East Coast Well you know it's like funny like in Eskimos it's freezing all the time you know and so the cold ends up shaping a little bit their culture yeah um you know in brazil it's like 80 degrees and there's like beaches and you know it's balmy and that kind of shapes the culture you know kind of island culture and i do think that here in san francisco you know just the unbelievable weather yeah. and the tastiness i mean even you go to an airport and you pick up an apple and it is so succulent you know and i just think that uh there is it's got to have some effect and also you know it's a very tiny place i mean you know new york has nine million people san francisco does not yeah. you know it's a tiny little place a lot of people know a lot of people and so it's just um yeah it's a very very interesting culture and people are sophisticated and you know and i'll say one thing about talking about culture and all that shape Panisse, you know with all the talk of oh well in the old days this is what happened i mean a dinner at the shape Panisse cafe is a perfect and modest and delicious meal right i mean literally it maintains its preeminence of, of, of perfection so we're not writing alice waters off yet huh no, but I mean, you know, it's funny because um, <laughs> it's almost a, 
a curse to be number, you know, so in doing such interesting things for so many decades. You know, Shape the Nieces now, they're going to have their 40th anniversary. Wow. So uh, I was thinking that maybe we have to, you know, fly out uh, and Jack has to come with some radio equipment and, oh, you know, gosh. the three of us should go and That would be it. a real hardship. Anyway. Um, but we have to volunteer, you know. Yeah, well, we can do that. Um, Patrick, we have to say goodbye now, but thank you very okay. much for phoning in. It was great to hear your voice. I'll see you on Wednesday. How's your show going? Your uh, show it's going been good? awesome. Absolutely awesome. We have to have Fern well, back. She's been me. wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're okay, too. <laughs> Have a it's safe. It's a real honor to be on a guest. <laughs> safe travels, darling. I'll see you Wednesday. Thanks, Bye. Pat. Bye bye. Puts on his only blue suit. He hasn't quite mastered tying his tie on the way his sweet Sarah used to. It's been years since he's talked to the good Lord. Not sure he even knows how But he won't be mowing the front yard today He goes to church on Sundays now No, he don't know the words to the old rugged cross But he sings them the best that he Sits on the very front row And he bows his head with the members And he shouts amen good and loud Welcome back to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, um, and my next guest is Susan Hunt Stevens, the founder and CEO of a new website called Practically Green. Um, and Susan's, I'm just going to read a quick bio for Susan, and then we'll go right into our conversation with her. Susan's green living journey began when her son was diagnosed with serious food and environmental allergies, processed through, oh, sorry, progressed through a green historic home renovation, a green mom blog, a graduate program in sustainable design, and finally to founding Practically Green in order to make the process she is going through personally easier and more fun for others. Um, Susan has a big background in um, in media, both digital and uh, and print, um, and was uh, most recently the uh, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Boston.com, and um, which of course is part is the Boston Globe. And she was also co-founder of Abridge Incorporated, a venture-backed startup that focused on finding patterns and trends in email and other electronic communications. Not surprising that she would go into creating a blog. Um, Susan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Katie. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, um, Susan, we were going to um, talk especially about uh, food allergies um, and sort of how they uh, inspired you to pursue this uh, green uh, project and what 
what you think about food allergies and the way our food system works now and how they're connected. I myself have tons of food allergies or grew up with them. Okay, so you know. <laughs> I do, there. but I don't, I mean, the food system was very different when I was little. So, you know, to me, it's it a whole is. different story. So tell me what well, happened with your son and what led you to connect it to the food service or to the food, food systems. Sure. And so the story, I think, is very familiar to many parents with children under the age of 15. There has been a real increase in food allergies among young children. And what tends to happen is you feed your child something thinking it's going to be completely fine. Sometimes it's for the first time. Sometimes it can be a second or third. And all of a sudden you notice that they're not feeling very well. And the Reaction can be mild, um, eczema or just discomfort. In our case, it was really major. It went into anaphylactic shock, and we found ourselves on the way to the emergency room, and it had been a small piece of a cashew, and that's it. Oh, nut allergy, yeah. Yeah, and nut allergy has been on the rise in particular, and in our case, it started with tree nuts, but when they tested him, it ended up being tree nuts and peanuts, shellfish, sesame, and also a lot of environmental allergies. And so he just was this allergy kid, is, and I became an allergy mom. And what I didn't realize at the time as I was joining many moms around the country who were dealing this with this, and I handled it, I think, like many parents, by first and foremost saying, well, let's make sure this doesn't doesn't happen again, and starting to read labels and look for food that had peanuts, tree nuts, uh, shellfish, and in our case, sesame was really difficult because it isn't one of the top eight allergies, and so it's not always pulled out onto the label, and so you're constantly scrutinizing. And for me, it also meant I had to look up a lot of things because a lot of the food we had was um, mildly processed or in some cases majorly processed, so it had a lot of these long words, and I didn't know what they were, and I found myself looking up things, and in addition to realizing that there were things made from from nuts that I didn't realize, but also that a lot of the food that I was giving my son at the time had uh, preservatives and artificial colors and that there were concerns about how things were acting. So it really started us on this journey of just trying to make one change at a time uh, to be healthier and greener and first and foremost keep him safe from nuts and other allergens, but also to begin to free our food in many ways from some of the chemicals and toxins that I hadn't realized and additives, et cetera, that were there. So um, I hadn't really understood why and what was going on. I experienced it just on the front lines at the playground and in the schools and realizing that you know, half the moms I were meeting with dealing with one sort of allergy or another. And what for me was really transformational in learning about this was getting connected with Robin O'Brien, who, like me, was a mom who ended up with four children who had food allergies. But instead of her going through a process and a blog of making the healthy green changes in her life, which she did, she also decided to use her background as an analyst and a researcher to really look at the connections between what and how our food had changed over the last 15 years and why it might be contributing to some of the illnesses and allergies that families are facing. Um, the numbers are pretty staggering. Almost 20% of all kids now have a food allergy, and one in three parents are dealing with uh, what they call the four A's, allergies, um, and then the other three are autism, ADHD, and asthma. Can I stop and, you for one second and ask sure. you, like, what exactly defines a food allergy? Like, how do you come to the conclusion that you have a food allergy rather than calling it a sensitivity or just 
I don't know, something else? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a food allergy is when there's been a confirmed immune response. And so that your immune system is reacting, reacting to the exposure to the allergen. Well, that can be measured in your blood. Like you have a level yes. of a certain component exactly. in your blood. I know because I have that. Um, yeah. That that makes you your immune system be sort of like slightly out of control in the sense of how it processes certain inputs. So right, and the st- standard test is a rast, what they call a rast test, and so they'll they'll put tiny amounts of the allergy all over you, yeah, and then measure how much immune response there was in your blood to that allergen, which is different than a food sensitivity or different than um, something like celiac disease, where you're having a processing issues with food. Uh huh. Okay, so let's go on. So what were the additives that they that uh, Robin felt were contributing to uh, the development of food allergies in, in uh, small children? Well, so what the research is that really was stunning for me and where I sat back and went, yeah, that is different, had to do with a lot of the engineering that has gone into food since 1994. And when you think about the mix between biotechnology and food, um, one of the one of the foods that many children are developing allergies to is milk, and um, the hormone and, and bio, uh, bioengineering of food began in, in 1994 with some of the milk hormones. But then more recently, it's really been two, um, two big things, which is soy and corn, and the genetic engineering of soy and corn. And what is interesting about the process of these things going through is is in the subcommittee minutes of um, scientists who are meeting around this, really one of the scientists said it best. We are running a a trial without informed consent on what can happen between genetic engineered foods and the population, and particularly children who are more susceptible to changes in proteins in smaller quantities, especially when it's being introduced for the food time. The truth is, we don't know that there is a definite connection between these things, but what happened, the very different between the United States and foreign countries, is a sort of the prove-it philosophy that we have in the United States, um, which is, let's put it out there, and if there's a problem, then we'll study it, and if we can prove that it's a problem, we'll, we'll yank it, versus the precautionary principle, which has really governed the introduction of genetically modified foods into the food systems in, in Europe. And so, for example, here's one difference that affects children between Britain and the United States. Britain advises, because of the data around soy, in particular in genetically modified soy, they changed a protein so that it looks a lot like a peanut allergen, um, Mm -hmm. something called ARAH3. And Britain says parents with children under the age of one should avoid soy altogether. France says zero to three uh, should avoid it. In the United States, we're never told to avoid soy. In fact, you think of soy as potentially being something that's really healthy for you. Yeah, I think a lot of parents feed their children soy milk. And yeah. uh, <laughs> tofu and soy-based products regularly. Exactly. exactly. And soy is now, the numbers are staggering. And unless it's certified organic, something like 90% of the rest of soy is from a modified seed. So you can't avoid it. And it's also not just in something that says soy, but there's right. all these other processes like soy lecithin and things like that that is in foods. And so what you don't realize is even if you're shopping super healthy and you're... 
um, trying to avoid artificial colors and flavors and preservatives and some of what I would call the more popular additives that you have learned about connections with children and children's health, you're still sitting there having genetically modified soy unless you are getting certified organic. And we have no way of avoiding it because it's not labeled and it's not required to be labeled, whereas in other countries it is. And so that was one of the connections that... um, that, that Robin found, and it's just how when the, when the process was divine to do the engineering, the proteins changed. And, right. and so one of the theories is that there could be a really strong connection with that. Another one, corn, and just recently, I think even last week, there was a bunch of articles around the fact that um, the corn modifications for um, MONH10, MONH863, and NK603. I tend to try to get these right, but <laughs> lots of numbers and letters. Um, I'm impressed. Are causing liver and kidney toxicity in mammals. And so you sit there and say, okay, if it's hurting Which mammals? mammals? Are, like cattle? Um, I mean, this is, this is, that would be different from, that would be feed corn, which is different from the corn that, Amer- <laughs> that uh, humans consume, though. Exactly, exactly. And so then the question is, if it's causing toxicity there, could it be passed? And the answer is nobody knows, but it's, it's under the precautionary principle, the alarm bells go off and say we need, really need to watch this, and this is another reason in France it's banned, but it's not here. And so it, it, what it raises is just this broader sense of we have all these health issues that we're seeing in our kids, there wasn't research done around the connection between uh, genetically engineered foods and environmental health issues and children's environmental health, health issues. And yet, as a parent, you can't avoid the stuff. You can't find right. it. You don't know unless you go certified organic. Well, I, I want to back you system. up for one second on the organic sure. thing because organic uh, can mean so many different things to so many people. And organic yeah. does not imply that something is not gemet- genetically modified necessarily. It merely implies that there are no additional inputs into the soil in the way of chemical fertilizers or pesticides. So. Um, so you could still have a GMO organic. soybean or, or uh, corn product and have it be certified organic. In, if, it's just, if it's just certified organic, you are exactly right, because there's a certain amount that can be allowed in. My understanding of the system, but you, you may know way more than I do, is that if it's 100% certified organic, it has to be free from GMO sorn in the product itself, but not necessarily to your point from the food that the animals are eating, unless they're required to eat 100% certified as opposed to certified organic food as well. Yeah, I wasn't aware that there was a difference between 100% and certified. Yeah, there is. There's different standards for organic certification. (laughs) I guess that's the problem with it. Go ahead. It's It's so complicated. And that's why we started Practically Green, is I sat there and said, my goodness, I have two graduate degrees, um, you know, a good education, and I can't see straight around this stuff. Well, my other guest... I was just going to say, my other guest in the studio today was Fern Gail Estro, who's a registered dietitian, and I know that she has something to say about the sort of certified, 100% certified. So, Fern, why don't you enlighten us a little bit more about this? And it's great to have you on, and I think that there is a good point here that most people, if you, when you go to purchase, you'll look at your label and you'll say it says USDA certified. There is a difference. 100% 100% is something you very seldom see. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think I've ever be, seen that. And that would be where the qualification would come in. About genetically modified organisms. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything that says 100% certified organic. I've only seen the USDA or just certified organic. And that goes with all the big labels. I mean, that's, you know, Cassadian Farms and Air Juan and all of those guys who have bought into the, you know, corporate, uh, which is fine. I mean, I think it's great that people make money on organic food. I love, I mean, I have no problem with it. But And many of the companies are producing both an organic and a conventional and using... Absolutely. It's the same thing as a lot of uh, livestock companies actually have two tiers, commodity and premium yeah. So anyway, sorry, Susan. Yeah. Just I just wanted to make sure that, you know, to clarify that because there's so much disinformation and misinformation and misunderstanding around all natural, natural, certified, 100% certified, blah, blah, blah. So let's keep going. Mm-hmm. This is good. This is great. So you were so you read all these labels and uh, and you discovered that even with two uh, graduate degrees, you were still mystified by <laughs> <laughs> by how it all works and what it all means. And so you established your blog. Was that sort of how that came out? So what I started with is initially just sharing what I was learning with other moms and feeling like if I'm doing all this research and I'm finding things and, and learning it, I might as well um, write it down. And if somebody's interested in reading it and it helps them, that's great. Right. And I started getting a lot of questions from people. And what I realized is that people were hungry for this kind of information. And it is incredibly confusing and complex and contradictory. And it's also changing really fast, whether it's new products coming out or standards changing or new labels. I mean, think about this across the world of sort of healthy and natural products, which crosses food to cleaning to uh, paper, everything, yeah. 300 certification systems globally, 88 here in the U.S. that you have to try and understand to, to make a healthy and green decision around something. And just consumers can't see straight. It's close to impossible. Throw on top of that, 95% of all products fall victim to one, or I shouldn't say victim, are are, are about greenwashed, basically. One of the sins of greenwashing, according to Terra Choice, um, 95% of all products. And so what it started as a blog to just share a journey became a re- an idea for a resource. And really, could we create a system that sort of helped people figure out where are they in this whole world of healthy and green, but more importantly, if they were choosing to take an action that very quickly provided executive summaries for people on why something is green, how to do it, and then people who were making these changes could recommend products. We created a set of standards where we would screen products to make sure that they met at least a, a threshold for uh, it being truly green. Uh, and do you guys actually do research, you know, do you do research into the into the products, uh, how they're manufactured, what components they contain, and so on, in order to make that assessment? What we do is we synthesize the other third parties that are doing the research across mm-hmm. all the categories um, to put it against a standard so that you yourself don't have to go look in 18 different places to right. answer it. We do that work for you and then put it on the list based on, on that. But what you do have to decide is that you like our standards. And there are some people who may say our standards aren't strong enough and they want it perfect. You know, So, for example, the sure. Good Guide uh, does a lot of evaluation of cleaning products and other things. So what we screen is to say... Does does it have at least an eight in health from the good guide, at least a seven in environment? If so, we'll put it on the list. In the case of Environmental Working Group, which does cosmetics, we'll say, is it a zero to three in the Environmental Working Group? Because if yes, then it goes on our list. But if it's a four or above, it doesn't go on our list. Mm-hmm. And so we take the work out of it for people in many ways. And But then we let consumers rate and review it, because just because it's truly green doesn't mean that 
people like it. And if it's food, it tastes good. If it's a cleaning product, it works and things like that. So we let people then share their knowledge about whether something is what they would recommend to a friend. So any change that you're trying to make, whether it's a a change related to food or whether it's a change related to um, cleaning products or energy or health or water, you can see, you know, very quickly um, all the facts and you can take the action and then what we love is we've decided to build it and connect it to Facebook. So not only can you go through this process yourself, but if you are, are there with your friends, you can see which actions your friends have taken and you can share your actions with your friends because many times these changes are really invisible. And one of your friends, and you don't know your friend has done this, and when we can help you figure that out, then that person can become a resource and, and can motivate and inspire you to do more. I know when I first got connected to the system, I realized, wow, I I have not made any of these changes in this area of, in my world, it was e-billing. I was all over the food and health ones, but on the e-billing, and I was just an e-billing laggard, and so it really motivated me to change on that front. (laughs) See, to me, it just like rings alarm bells of like, oh my God, what if I'm not good enough? Oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's why it's called practically green. There's no such thing as perfectly green. And everybody has their own journey, and some are getting started, and some are in the middle, and everybody has their Achilles heel, and we all know what that is. Um, and cha- and these changes are hard. I mean, I can't tell you how long it takes me to get through a grocery store, you know, because yeah. I'm not only looking for, uh, especially if I'm traveling, so it's not the ones I'm used to, but, you know, because I don't just look for the allergens, which takes long enough, you know, I'm also looking to just make sure it doesn't have some of the preservatives that I'm concerned about, the artificial colors, um, high fructose corn syrups, and, and all those kinds of things. So I'm a nightmare in a grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the pokiest person the in the world. Well, I, I have to say that, uh, to just to play devil's advocate here for a second, um, we frequently have Marian Nessel on as a guest, who's the director of food studies at NYU. And um, she is she has made the point for us uh, more than one occasion about, um, you know, the, the marketing, uh, d- the use of... Um, High fructose corn syrup as a negative uh, marketing incentive by companies like, uh, you know, soft drink companies and so on who claim that their product is made with pure cane sugar as opposed to high fructose corn syrup. And she points out that as a chain of molecules, they are absolutely identical and they work on your body in exactly the same way. And there is no difference between them. And yet uh, companies, you know, juice companies and soft drink companies and candy companies and so forth have, have jumped on this marketing concept of cane sugar being a better alternative. And I think that that's... That's a case of what you called greenwashing, and I love that term. I think that's so smart and so funny. Um, but you know, to me, I think that you know this whole area is fraught with um, with big food or or you know large corporations of any kind jumping on uh, these concepts of local, sustainable, what have you, and turning them to their own account uh, in a way that kind of misleads the public and makes them think that they're doing something. Uh, that maybe they're not doing, that they're doing something good for themselves, which isn't necessarily the case, or, or vice versa. So, you know, it's, it's, well, it's, it's an interesting, oh. um, it's an interesting uh, ethical problem in and of itself, I think. It, it is, and I think what you raise is this classic issue of there just isn't enough science around the impact yeah. of the food, because as a mother, here's the two things that make me nervous on what they do know about high fructose corn syrup. 
One is that they have found a lot, uh, when the testing high fructose corn syrup, they've found mercury in it. And mercury, we know. I mean, there's no question around mercury. That's bad. You do not want mercury in your food. And then the second is that Princeton, just last year, there was a study around rats who took the same amount of regular calories, so 100 calories of regular sugar, and then some rats had 100 calories of high fructose corn syrup, and the rats with the high fructose corn syrup gained more weight statistically. That doesn't mean it transcends to humans, and I'm not saying it does, and I'm not a scientist, but yeah, I, I saw look that at that study, and actually. I say... I say, well, okay, if they found some mercury in it and rats gain twice the weight and there's plenty of alternatives to foods with high fructose corn syrup, then I'm going to choose foods that don't have it. At the same time, sugar at some level is, is sugar, and you still want to manage the amount of sugar your kids are getting. No question about it. To me, the answer is no juice, no soda. Right, and I think that that's <laughs> yeah, really exactly. a really important part of the conversation. What's happened with high fructose corn syrup is because of its cost factor, it's very easy for companies to add it in as a flavoring. Yeah. And so, yeah. therefore, it dominates the palate of a lot of products that are being produced and, and, and moved to children as well as others. And that in and of itself, you know, it's also the sugar substitute conversation. It's all related. It's what's happened to our palates. And yeah. So that yeah. so that sugar, salt, and fat are the exactly. primary things yeah. we taste and want to taste over and over again, no matter what vehicle they come encased in. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's training your brain to yeah. overindulge. Well, in the word. Consumer Reports uh, health letter, which I get, um, they had a very interesting sort of, you know, buy this instead of that kind of thing. And a lot of the products that they, they pointed to were, were food products. And they were things like, you know, buy Paul Newman spaghetti sauce over, I think it was his, over, say, Prego, because there's so much more sugar in one brand versus the other. And it was the same thing in a variety of Progresso soups or Campbell's or any of those, any packaged foods. Salt's the same thing. It's salt or it's sugar, but one or the other is heavily, heavily weighted. And, you know, to my mind, as somebody who cooks regularly and is trained as a cook, you you know, I would just never buy those products. But for most people for whom cooking can be a challenge, especially if you're two families, you know, two two parents out of the house working, um, you know, not relying on product, products like that is is truly a challenge. And uh, it is it is very, very hard, I think, for people to decide which one is going to be the better course for their families, especially when convenience is really what it's all about for, you know, people like that. I mean, I was just having this conversation with a girl that I work with who's got two little kids at home. She works full time. Her husband works full time. And she was like, you know, somebody was making her feel bad because she serves her kids chicken nuggets. And it's like, you know what? Hey, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. It's like better than, I don't know, better than some other alternatives. And I think that there's a really interesting point here. And it's how can we help our families time-wise to, to deal with and cope with this? There was a time, and, and to be honest with you, slow cooking is some, using slow cookers. I mean, I'm making a cocoa van this weekend and it'll last me the week. Well, I do that too. I cook for the week, but, yeah, um, but it's you know, hard. you probably do too, Susan. But it's, it's really, if you don't have the inclination, the time, right. or the funds, uh, you know, and there's a real reason why people go for fast food. Um, although, as Patrick and I have demonstrated over and over again, fast food is not always the cheapest alternative. Oh, not at all. Um, but, no. uh, but if you don't have the infrastructure, if you are living in a, in a hotel or living in a, you know, temporary shelter, you really don't have a lot of choices there. So, um, Susan, I'm afraid we have to wrap this up, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting. Let's um, let people know where your website is and how they can get involved. Sure. They can visit us at practicallygreen.com. That's great. And you can, there's a whole, there's a quiz. You have a whole lifestyle quiz, right? And Yes, we do. And Come lots on and in lots and of, take the quiz. yeah, it's fun. It's definitely fun. It and is. It's a fun it's site. Really fun. And it has a lot of great tips and suggestions for people that are, you know, most of them are pretty easy to, to integrate into your lifestyle. So it's been, a, it's well, been fun for me to watch it grow. 
No, good. And we do try to make it easy for families because we're, we're moms too. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing that I really like about it is that it's it's very female centric. <laughs> Since we are the ones who kind of primarily bear that. I burden, was going to so, say we're making eighty yeah. percent of those household decisions. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. See, there you. This is what happens when you have a marketing whiz on the other end of the line. Here, it's like, yeah, she knows those facts and figures. Well, Susan, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, and I hope we'll see you sometime in New York City. Do feel free to give me a call the next time you're in town, and maybe we can bring you back for an encore. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thanks, Katie. You betcha. Take care, Susan. Bye bye. This has been uh, the main course. Our next guest is going to be Steve Pope talking about uh, heritage poultry. Uh, many thanks to our wonderful guest, Ferngale Estro, and uh, Patrick, have a safe trip home. And Jack, thanks for engineering and producing today. And uh, thanks to the Hearst Ranch for sponsoring us. So long. As the songs my mother sings When just a child I used to listen When she would sing of God's great love Somehow I knew her voice was blending With the angels up above I know the angels soon will call her To that home Hi, this is Chef Steve with Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch getting ready to have another session with... Uh, poultry and talking about what's happening with the poultry industry have a couple of things I want to talk about today and and one of them is uh, uh, the uh, information that's in the news which seems to be getting more and and more um, intense about what's happening with our our world of meat and poultry food of this nature have with me today uh, Good Shepherd CEO Frank Reese Jr. and Frank is going to talk a little bit about animal science and and, and what is happening with the, the genetics that are continuing to be uh, in the forefront of the poultry industry right now, right now. Also, going to talk maybe just a little bit about making homemade noodles. I've had a couple of people ask me about that because noodles and 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 uh, dumplings and things like that seem to go so well with poultry. So we'll also talk a little bit about that. Uh, but ask uh, Frank to come on now, and we'll kind of get started with that. And Frank, are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right. Hey, listen, great. Uh, one of the things that you know seems to be in the uh, forefront of of a lot of activities right now is this whole thing about genetics and uh, not only just with uh, poultry but also with uh, other livestock as well as vegetables and just a couple of things that uh, the listeners might be interested in hearing about and maybe give a little clarity about what's happening out there in the world of genetic uh, and genetic engineering, things of this nature. I heard you speak to me the other day about the word a dead-in animal, and this is sort of interesting because it relates a lot to what we're trying to achieve with Good Shepherd and what's happening to the poultry out there. So let's start off by looking at what do we mean by a dead-end animal? A dead-end animal, when it, when it applies to poultry um, or to turkeys, means that this particular animal, that if you buy those baby chicks and bring them back to your farm to raise them, that they will not live long enough to reproduce. They have been genetically designed uh, to grow very, very, very rapidly, and then they get so heavy that they 
start dying. And so this is a very smart thing to do if you're wanting to control the genetics. Okay. Well, it, it it obviously says that if you're, you know, there's such a surge right now of interest in that area because we're also hearing a lot of other things in the news. What do we talk about GMO? And I know that's a word that's out there a lot for uh, for seed crops and things of that nature. But how does the GMO, GMO uh, relate to the poultry? Well, there are no GMO poultry as of yet. That means genetically modified. Organism, where that means they have taken a gene from some other organism and put it into that particular organism. There are GMO crops where they have, you know, genetically modified that. What they're doing with poultry is still hybridization, but it's genetic hybridization, which means that they were able to isolate certain genomes within poultry that they know produce certain characteristics, and that's what they breed through. But it takes a factory farm to do that. Well, what, you know, I'm going to interject in the question here and kind of play devil's advocate to this. What's wrong with that? Gee, it sounds like we're making, uh, uh, science is making uh, people uh, a better product or a more volume product. What, what's going on there? Well, it all depends on what you're trying to do on the far end. If you're just trying to produce a mass-produced animal very, very quickly uh, and and if you're not wanting to produce your own food, uh, if you're not wanting to be able to reproduce and grow your own crops, if you're a farmer, uh, whether you're doing it on a large scale or a small scale, you cannot do that with these hybrid-engineered birds. You must always go back to the source, just the same as GMO crops. So does, does someone own these genetics that you're talking about, or are they, they a purchasable, purchasable item? What, what is that about? Well, you can buy the end product of what they do. In other words, you can go and buy these uh, broilers, chickens, these meat chickens, whether they be Cornish Rocks or Freedom Rangers or whatever. Uh, these birds are hybrids that have to be produced with multiple breeding flocks to be able to get this animal that grows at this rapid rate and puts on this huge breast because that's not normal in nature. And so these are synthetic animals. Uh, and you can, but, but you cannot get your hands on the seed stock. That's what I was asking. Is that that you can't, you, nobody can touch. That is owned by the factory industry genetic farms. Uh, even to get breeder stock farther down, you know, like grandparent stock or parent stock, uh, to be able to produce that uh, end product uh, would cost you a small fortune. Well, I know as a chef, I concern myself with producing uh, for the consumer uh, a certain flavor, a certain taste. And one of the things that I can vouch for personally is that there is a tremendous, tremendous difference between the heritage uh, line of birds and those that are uh, commercially made or commercially produced. And I I think, you know, when you start selecting, am I correct to this? You start selecting for qualities, you may be losing out on other qualities, and I suspect we're losing out on the flavor and things of that nature. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a huge difference even within the, you know, if you leave it up to Mother Nature, uh, if you leave it up to... 
the particular known old breeds, there was a, there's a big difference between eating a Bard Rock or a New Hamp or a Jersey Giant or a Silver Laced Wine Dot or the many varieties of old breeds that are still out there in very small numbers, but that are still out there. Um, they were all known and for their uniqueness uh, and skin texture and color of fat, and it goes on and on. Uh, it isn't one size fits all. They're all quite different. Well, I know that you know. I use the adage in my com- in my communication to chefs and stuff that you you select a certain type of beef for a certain usage, and you certainly would not grind up a uh, prime sirloin uh, and uh, or steak or, or uh, something of this nature to make hamburger. So each one of those birds do serve a, a specific purpose. One of the things I have been doing, I, I have a, a radio spot that I also do for uh, the Chicken Whisperer out of Atlanta, Georgia. And we were uh, on the air the other day talking about backyard farming and uh, backyard poultry, I should say, and what's happening across the nation. Why do you think that there's this surge of people keeping uh, small uh, little flocks of birds as, as opposed to the large farmers? What, what, what do you think is happening there? Well, I, the first thing that comes to mind is I think people are just beginning to realize the enjoyment of having poultry, of uh, being able to see that animal go about its life. Yeah. And so, and also, most of these places are encouraging people to raise the old standard bread or heritage chickens, partially because they know those birds are capable of living a normal life. Well, also because they're able to actually live outside. They're, they're able to handle the weather, things of this nature. I'm sure that might play into it also. Uh, well, I, you know, it's no different than gardening or some of the other things. You know, a lot of people garden not just because they enjoy the food and they know where the food has come from, but it's also the beauty of the garden, uh, actually putting a seed and watching the plant grow. And it's the same way... There's a great enjoyment in watching and teaching your children and your family and having a hen sit on some eggs. And miraculously, she hats out all these little babies. And everything that those little chicks need are still within that, that bird's capability. I mean, she still has those genetic characteristics that allows her to, to nurture and to raise those little chicks. Well, you know, one of the things that I found interesting, I have had uh, for different demonstrations and shows that I've done. I've had uh, parents come up to me and ask to talk to their children about this this particular cycle of life. One of them had even mentioned that they <laughs> that they uh, their children did not correlate that, that that chicken that's in the grocery store that's cut up and packaged was also the same thing that was out in the yard and they see pictures of uh, that they, they, they're not uh, introduced to the knowledge of, of the the relationship or correlation that that bird was actually a living, uh, breathing animal, if you will. And it's interesting to see how that continues to be, you know, uh, out there, if you will. It's just sort of interesting. That life cycle thing is really interesting because I, I also think that it helps teach children um, about birth and death. And I think that, you know, that's a whole different subject and, and could go very deep. But just touching on it lightly by saying that, that you learn about life and death by, by raising um, these animals. And, and that, of course, could be any animal, but in this case we're talking about poultry. But there is a, a surge in, commun- in, in consumer demand, and I know that, uh, that Patrick has, has talked about how his, 
his work with the different animals and, and different products that he's now carrying, that the demand continues to grow because people are not going to settle for just anything. And I, I kind of like that. I think that that's sort of making a full circle uh, coming around uh, to everything. Well, let's talk just a little bit more about the genetic process of what's happening there. Uh, what do you see happening in the future if we don't take heed to all this? Well, <clears throat> what the industry themselves are saying is, is right now, uh, and this has happened within the last 30 years, our chickens take 120, 140 days to grow to fryer weight, which is three, three-and-a-half-pound birds. Uh, within that 30 years, they have got it down to uh, 42 days on average, and some of them are even processing at 32 days. And what they're looking at now through genetic manipulation uh, and through genetic and genome selection is, is to get a bird in that period of time that's even bigger. That's, you know, that uh, if you go back 50 years ago, the average chicken you bought at, the, at your local meat market weighed two, two and a half pounds. And now the industry not only can do that in 42 days, but now the bird weighs three, three and a half pounds. And through synthetic proteins, synthetic chickens, they are working towards getting a four, four-and-a-half-pound chicken in that same amount of time. So, um, and, you know, how much farther can they take it? How much farther can they push science? Uh, you know, that old saying, who's going to win, science or Mother Nature? Well, and that's kind of scary, and I think there's a lot of people that would relate to that, that, you know... What, what is happening is we're creating certain things that are going into our bodies, and we assume that it's going to, uh, to uh, do its thing for us to produce healthy, a healthy body and tissue for us, and there's a lot of concerns about the potential byproducts. Antibiotics is another thing that we look at, and, and I know that one of the things that you, you tout that's really very important is that you really don't have to use antibiotics not even as a prevention. A lot of times people say, well, you take antibiotics when you're sick. Isn't the industry also doing that with prevention, meaning that they will go ahead and give them the antibiotics? What, what is the... Uh, what is yeah, the antibiotics is used traditionally throughout all production of all types of livestock and poultry. But even if you buy uh, an antibiotic-free, organic, uh, pasture-raised, chicken at your local grocery store, if that genetics of that bird comes from the factory system and 90% of all those birds they're selling out there do, you're still supporting the use of antibiotics because the parents of that chicken were fed tons of antibiotics to be able to produce that chicken you're buying at the grocery store. So you have not prevented the problem nor the misuse of antibiotics. And the real problem with the use of antibiotics is not in the food you eat, but it is in the production, because that's where you get the mutated bacteria, the mutated viruses, is in the breeder barns. Well, this also extends, which kind of scares me when you're talking of this, this particular uh, information. You know, I'm, I'm noticing in the news, I mean, the, in, in Great Britain and throughout the recall of eggs and, and uh, the the birds that had to be slaughtered in China and and uh, because of this mass production. Uh, do you think that this is, a, again, uh, one major byproduct of, of, negative byproduct, I should say, of raising chickens in such great masses? Oh, very much so. 
because you no longer have individual farmers who always do the best job. But now everybody who raises those chickens is an employee of the corporation. And, you know, you always do a different job if you're just an employee or if you actually are the owner and have a day-in and day-out personal relationship and live with those birds as compared to going in and working eight hours and going home. So I think there will always be human error. Now, that recall that just happened in Europe, that was uh, a result of manufacturing of synthetic proteins that were being fed to the chickens. And unbeknownst, you know, to the manufacturer of the feed, there was high levels of uh, dioxin in the feed that was then fed to the chickens, of course, that got into the meat and the eggs. But that's, that's another whole subject. That's, that's the use of, I mean, they make that synthetic protein out of biofuel. That, well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because when I read the information on it, that itself says, wow, synthetic food for chickens made out of biofuels as a byproduct. Uh, when we're saying that you're, we're talking about the ethanols, uh, the, the uh... yeah, as, as once we went into producing biofuel, um, <clears throat> that put a real strain on the poultry industry because all of a sudden now the, their main source of carbohydrates and proteins was soy and corn went sky high because now all of a sudden those grains were being used to produce bio, biofuel. So to try to you know, then other people came in and said, well, we're going to take the byproducts of the production of biofuel and feed it to our livestock. Uh, it's being fed to pigs. It's being fed to cattle. It's being fed to turkeys. And, you know, this is the results of, of you know, trying to do this. Uh, because once you genetically engineer these animals to grow at these tremendous rapid rates, you must produce uh, very high protein to keep up with that metabolic rate. You cannot feed these chickens uh, or turkeys um, a normal scratch feed or put them out on grass. They won't survive. You must feed them these high levels of protein. And as the proteins become more and more expensive worldwide, then the scientists step in and say, well, we'll, we'll produce protein synthetically. Scary stuff. A lot of it is scary stuff, what's happening. And this is not happening overnight. This has been coming clear back uh, from the late 40s, early 50s, when they started doing some genetic engineering with our birds. Well, the big breakthrough is in the 70s. The big breakthrough, when they were able to isolate the obese gene, um, that was the big breakthrough. There was a huge change uh, in, in the rate of growth and feed conversion uh, and also the big change was when chickens then were, and turkeys, by the 70s, were moved off pasture and put into confinement buildings. Yeah. Um, under the realms of we have to protect these chickens. Um, but the real reason was is that if you have an animal that sits still, you know, they're like couch potatoes. They get fatter faster. Scary stuff. So. Frank, I want to uh, thank you for coming on today and talking about this. I'm going to move on to making some noodles and uh, briefly a few other subjects. But it's the kind of information that you give us, and I know this is a lifelong study for you. This is your world, so this sort of makes you an authority on the processes of that are going on 
and I appreciate you coming on, giving the listeners uh, some information, maybe a little technical, but it's interesting to know what is happening to the foods that we eat. So I thank you again for coming on. I want to talk just a little bit. You're more than welcome. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Florence Fabricant. I really enjoyed the last week's uh, uh, session that they had with her because she talked about the things that are most dear to my heart, and that is understanding this resurgence of food that was uh, eating uh, people used to eat centuries ago, and and how there's uh, the need to return to those those roots, and of course this whole realm of cooking with slow cooking, very good stuff, and I really uh, really tuned into that because I thought it was interesting information. Very quickly, because we're I don't want to go over. Uh, let's talk a little bit about homemade noodles. Now a lot of people will buy those noodles at the market market and, and, and uh, prepackaged, but you know you can make them at home so fast, and they are so much better. The taste itself is wonderful. So just a simple recipe, and I do it grandma's way. I take two cups of flour, and I put it right there on the counter and make a nice little well. I take a, a three egg yolks and then one whole egg. Uh, about two tablespoons of cold water and a ha- about a teaspoon of salt. I mix that up and then I place that all in the well, in the center of that well of flour. And I want you to know all I do is stand there and work that and knead that up and that rich yellow color comes out because of the egg yolks. And of course, if you're using uh, farm-fed uh chicken eggs, you're certainly going to have a much richer yolk even then. But all you have to do is mix that together, and I separate it into about three different sections, and then I roll it out as flat as I can, and equally, if you have one of those little Italian uh, noodle or pasta uh, rollers, that's wonderful. If not, the good old-fashioned rolling pin works very well. Roll it out, lay it on a small towel, and let it start to dry while you do the other two uh, pieces, then take and We'll come back to that first sheet, roll it up, cut it into about half inch. I like half inch. Sometimes I even go three-quarter inch, and I cut them into long strips, and then I leave them as they are, let them dry out a little bit, and then when I'm ready to do the noodles, I'll cut them up to the size that I want, or I'll just leave them as long long ones uh, if I make a thin spaghetti-type noodle. Otherwise, I can freeze them. They stay great for a long time. Just remove as much air out of the package as you can. You get ready to use them. You just break them up, put them in that pot of good, fresh, boiling chicken broth, and you have got some great homemade noodles. Till next week, this is Chef Steve with Good Shepherd Poultry. Appreciate you listening. (laughs) 